This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Teaching notoriously has a diversity problem. That is, it's not diverse. Can schools do anything about that? Plus, we think we know what the digital divide is, but what if it's not about not having enough technology, but having too much? Those topics and kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, it's been a while. Has been. What do you teach? High school social studies. And I should say happy birthday to your one-year-old Diego. Yeah. Just celebrated a birthday. Yeah, feliz cumpleaños, little man. <laughs> uh, Maria Kennedy, also been a while since I've seen you. Welcome back. What do you teach? Thank you. I teach AP U.S. History. And Bakari Oku'u, also haven't seen you in a while. Welcome back. Thank you. And what do you do in education? I'm middle school vice principal. They're all public or public charter school educators in the Kansas City Metro. Just a reminder before we get to our first topic, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Well, to our first topic, newsflash. Teaching has a diversity issue, though the teaching workforce is undergoing some dramatic demographic shifts in some areas, which I'll get to in just a second. The profession remains overwhelmingly white and female. Richard Ingersoll with the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education has studied teacher demographics for three decades. His latest analysis shows the teaching ranks are getting younger, but they're also getting more female, also slightly more racially diverse. Based on data from the 2015-16 school year, Ingersoll calculates that about 20% of teachers now are non-white. That's up from 12.5% in the late 1980s. Still, Ingersoll says, in an occupation that sees an astonishing amount of turnover, 44% of teachers leave within their first five years overall. Teachers of color leave the profession at even higher rates, and that rate of attrition is going up. So, are schools doing enough not only hire teachers of color, but also so keep them. And I want to start this conversation by reading from a column published online at a website called The Education Post by a woman named Ingmar Swimpson. She works with Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. Her job title is equity specialist in that school district's HR department. And this is what she says. She writes, we, meaning schools, are woke enough to want all the black and brown teachers we can get, but we're not willing to wake up and do the work to change the institutional practices and traditions that have implicitly and sometimes explicitly marginalized teachers of color. Are we ready to do the work of culturally responsive recruiting? End quote. So for our teachers here, what say you? Do you agree with that assessment? I mean, why would anybody want to become a teacher? Just looking at how this the, the profession is and the state of it and how it gets denigrated um, in the press, the media, on top of that, just look at how many people are going into college that are diverse, that are people of color, and it's not that many. It's, it's also just a, a problem of recruiting diversity within schools of education. Yeah, I agree. I agree that, like, the issue is much larger than that. I think there are a couple of, I yeah, I, Greg, I appreciate what you had to say because that, that resonates with me. A couple things I would say. One— when you're talking about barriers to 
access to owning classrooms. One thing that comes to my mind are some of the uh, state tests or the certification tests that teachers need to take. For example, I think now in Missouri, it's what called the MOCA. It's changed so many mm-hmm. times. But it's called the MOCA. Back when I was certified, it was the Praxis test. I'll never forget. Uh, MOCA sounds a lot more inviting than MOCA Praxis. MOCA does mm-hmm. sound a lot more inviting. But um, yeah, so when I took the Praxis test, I took the, it was called 0081 High School Social Studies. And it tested a U.S. history, world history, government, economics, psychology, sociology, and anthropology. And government. Sorry, I don't know if I said that one. And that was pretty overwhelming for me. And so I opened up, I'll never forget, like I opened up one of the testing practice books and it said any content from any of these broader contents are admissible on the test. And so I literally just like read that first page. I just quietly closed that book because I just, I was like, I, there's no way I could possibly prepare for every single nugget of knowledge on here. And I took the test and I did fine on it, but I remember, I'll never forget, one of the questions was about the Luddites, which if you don't know, are a group of people who are adverse to technology. That was the type of question that was on that test. And I will never forget thinking, what on earth does my random and truly useless, useless outside of this test anyway, piece of trivia on the Luddites have to do with my ability to be a good history teacher? I have heard from partners at Teach for America as well as partners at the Kansas City Teacher Residency, both of whom are organizations that try to prioritize equity and diversity, that one of the biggest issues they're having right now is that teachers across the board, but particularly prospective teachers of color, are struggling to actually pass these tests. And it's not... It's due, I think, to some bias within those tests and, frankly, some of the things that they are implicitly measuring. I would agree, and I think that it's no different than the bias that we see on other state standardized testing that impacts students of color more disproportionately than they do any other demographic. When we think about recruiting and retaining, it's about are we creating a system that is actually safe and inviting to teachers and students of color in a way that actually perpetuates them or allows them to want to be a part of that system. I think when you grow up through a system that you've often felt otherized in or marginalized in, you're less likely to actually want to go back and be a part of that system. Then when you actually do become a teacher, I think when you see the increase of turnover of teacher of colors, again, because once you get into a space where you realize that your voice is not as valued or your perspective is not as valued as others, then you tend to not want to stick around as long as those other people. And so I think we have to create a space where it's actually inviting and, and value added for teachers of color to be. Teacher uh, of color to be. There's also a lot of upfront costs to becoming a teacher. There's a lot of certification costs that you need to pay, whether it's the state tests or actually like purchasing your certification from the state. And I have heard from the talent recruiter at my school that one of the biggest barriers, she will get a lot of Uh, prospective teachers, again, teachers of color, who are like, I really want to, I want to move here to Kansas City, or I'm already here in Kansas City, and I really, you know, want to become a teacher, and I'm interested in that, and I want to participate in your program, because we have a program that helps with certification, and we have a program that helps, um, even if you don't have an education degree, you can still come work at the school, but they're like, but but just money, you know, how much money it's going to cost for me to make those upfront investments in courses, or like I said, the state test or the certification costs. And that, that I know for some of my colleagues has been a real barrier. Well, I, mean, that, I mean, that could go for any kind of profession. I mean, you, and, and I would imagine the barriers to entry might be even lower for teaching as opposed to, like, say, being a doctor or being even a nurse. Or, <laughs> well, I think also right. that you have to consider, like, the long-term wealth that's in, in teaching as well. So if, 
if as a person of color, I'm one of the few in my family or in my generation to actually make it through to and through college and then to be able to become a professional, I'm going to seek out opportunities that are going to help, that's going to disrupt this generational poverty or, or, or generation, and that's going to add to my generational wealth. And so I think that teaching is not a career where we're, you're ever going to make real money or the best money. And so there are people... There are degrees that you can receive, that you can earn, that get you a higher salary starting off in, in, in the long term than teaching ever will. And so I think that is a definite a consideration for many um, individuals of color as we, as we think about establishing our own families, establishing our own wealth, and really positioning ourselves to have um, economic s- stability as well. You've been describing, um, I guess, what might be generally described as pipeline problems uh, getting into mm-hmm. the profession. Um, I do want to turn our, our attention before we end this conversation to, uh, um, I guess, hiring problems. Like once uh, candidates are through and actually before uh, potential districts and employers. Uh, back to Ingmar Swimson writing in the Education Post. She says, um, HR professionals in schools and districts are generally not well-versed in having multicultural conversations when they're talking to candidates of diversity. She writes, quote, it means being prepared to discuss your district's positions on immigration, racial equity, racial justice, structural racism, institutional racism, racial profiling, Mm -hmm. bullying, white privilege. It means being able to explain how it addresses hate crimes, how families are defined, and even how one's locks, braids, or TWA might be perceived, end quote. And I did have to look up TWA. Teeny Winnie Afro. Teeny Winnie Afro. Uh, <laughs> do you think the people who run schools, whether the people you work with or in other districts who are making hiring decisions, do you think they're ready to have those conversations in the interview room with candidates of color? Or do you even think that's necessary? I think it's necessary. I would say probably we are at large probably not in a place to have that conversation or we're, we're just now getting to a place to begin those conversations. I would also posit that those conversations have to go beyond the interview room. Those are, those are conversations that has to take place in the teacher's lounge, in the hallways, in the classrooms. And until that is the case, then we won't have a culture. I think that's part of the issues in our system is that many of those conversations often happen at the top and don't ever bleed down uh, or trickle down to the classroom and to the hallways and, and become part of the actual system itself. And until we see that happening, then we are going to continue to have this issue with turnover of teachers of color and both from a retention and a recruitment standpoint, because it's not just about diversity. It's also about inclusion. And inclusion means that you value my voice and you don't just value my my presence. Do you and the teachers that you know want to have conversations with your bosses about things like uh, white privilege and uh, racial profiling and structural racism? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. At my school, we have a committee used to be called Identity, Privilege and Justice Committee. We've actually recently changed the name to Justice League. Uh, And Justice League does a lot of work on culturally responsive pedagogy, but also like one of the biggest things that we found and the leaders of that committee have found is that in order to truly serve our kids who are predominantly children of color and come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, We actually have to do a lot of really tough work turning the mirror on ourselves and identifying and evaluating our own privilege, our own biases, where those come from, and then what we can do about them to uproot them. What does that look like in practice? Yeah. So actually just on Friday, just a couple days ago, we had one of, I think, our second installation of the year uh, where we actually read multiple articles and then discussed them in breakout small groups. We read, for example, White Feminism is Just White Supremacy in Heels which was a recent article talking about how many white women talk the talk of racial justice, but actually when push comes to shove are deeply uncomfortable talking about it. And that really resonated with us because just like uh, the sources for our podcast and what you're talking about said, a lot of teachers are white women. 
So we looked at that one. We also looked at Glenn Singleton's work on courageous conversations about race. And we looked at a particular anecdote that he had where a white boy on a plane clearly had never seen a black man before and was very curious about him and just his experience as a black male trying to both be welcoming to this young boy because this young boy is having a new and curious experience, but then also really reflecting on what that says about society that this white boy was so, so curious about a black man and had never seen one before. Did you find those conversations productive? Oh, yeah. So what we what we always do is we start by sort of unpacking the articles and discussing what resonates with us. And then the last section of the conversation in all the small groups is about, okay, so how do we apply this to here? What are some next steps for us? One of the pieces that came out of that was an idea for an equity team. So having a team that includes administration, teachers, as well as students and parents from all different backgrounds and identities all coming together to evaluate systems, practices, beliefs, both espoused and implicit Uh, and then look at, okay, like what needs to change? What needs to stay the same? I find it fascinating that we as urban educators, we all said that, yes, we are willing in our school administrators to to a degree are willing to have those conversations. And we had that at our school about three or four years ago when we had consultants come out, come from outside and do some training on cultural competency and, and, and teaching and turn the mirror on us, noticing our own biases. And it was, and it was, frankly, it was painful. It was really difficult to do. But I think it, it, it really helped bring us together and give us a vision of where we, where we want to be. Why was it painful? Because it, it is. It's difficult to look at your own biases and, and realize where, where you come from and realize that there is some separation between, between genders and between people of color, the, the few teachers of color that we have and everybody else. And it was, it was difficult. So I find it fascinating that, that we all said yes, that, that we do that. And then yet in suburban districts, there was a case that one of the suburban districts in Kansas City, mm-hmm. the African-American superintendent wanted to do some cultural competency mm-hmm. training and parents shot them down and, and said, no, we do, not, we do not want those conversations happening. Wouldn't even let them allocate the money to bring the consultant in. Right. Yeah. Right. And it was a tiny – I don't remember how much money was it. It, it wasn't was some, much. Yeah, it, it was some – minuscule portion of their funding. So it wasn't really about the money is my All three of you work in, I guess what you could call urban schools. Um, We've talked about that use of that term before. But but Greg, you're bringing up an interesting dichotomy, right? Because you all feel like you are at least doing the work or – um, at least talking about the work or thinking about talking about the work. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think my but frustration. A lot of other schools aren't. Yeah, it seems like my frustration is that that to a degree it's like we're we're, we're preaching to the choir, um, mm-hmm. and and the, some of the people who really need to hear this are are the bigger schools out in the suburbs, and it just seems like that's that isn't happening. You know, it's important that those convers- the conversation is happening um, at all. But it seems like it needs to break out of just the urban area. I would agree that it definitely needs to go beyond the urban setting. But I I would push back on this notion that we're preaching to the choir because I definitely think that there are teachers, administrators, employees in the urban setting who have not done the work, who are not doing the work necessary to best serve the students that they are charged to serve and that they have chosen to serve. I think that most urban districts have gotten to a place where they they can't deny that cultural competency is important and they at least have had a conversation or are in the spaces to begin those conversations. We cannot undervalue the importance of the ongoing conversation and not just rooted in race, but in other intersectionalities and other marginalized groups. And so I think it's important that equity becomes a standard of conversation and a standard of evaluation in all that we do. So that returns to the original premise that I started withdrawn from 
again, Ingmar Swimson's column in Education Post, the idea that school districts are, uh, at least in terms of their mindsets and their desires, woke, but in their practices are not. Do you agree with that? I, I don't. I think there are there are individuals in the districts and the schools that are woke who are who are trying to push their district to the direction. But I think we assume that they are woke because of the students in which they serve and the time in which we are serving them. And so it's very easy to assume wokeness because someone mentions equity or because someone is pushing an initiative around cultural competence or difficult conversations. But that doesn't necessarily imply that they're woke it. When we are woke, then we are actually making moves to change the outcomes that we determine needs to be changed. It's not just a conversation. So to me, wokeness goes beyond the thinking and it gets to the implementation. And until we start seeing implementation, I would suggest that they're not woke. Well, so when I think about how will we know, Bakari, we have... And there's no such thing as arriving, right? Right, right, right. Uh, But, like, when we know we've made real progress and can say, yes, like, this is a watershed moment, we have made progress here. I think there's, like, three different things, three different metrics that I would propose, and I would love your all's thoughts on it. I think, one, how we spend our time, Mm -hmm. both in front of kids and with just other adults, how we spend our money. I think, Greg, to your point, uh, suburban school district here in Kansas City was a fraction. I mean, it was tiny, and, and still we couldn't. Still, there was backlash. Okay, that says something. And then three, I think how we spend human capital and mm-hmm. how and roles that we create. And I think there's risk in that because sometimes what I have seen is that if there is somebody whose job is cult- cultural inclusivity, inclusion, equity, that in a way that sort of releases everybody else mm-hmm. cognitively of their own responsibility. Like, oh, okay, that's that person's job. But I also think that there's real power in actually saying we are paying somebody. It is this person's job to be a guardian, not the only guardian, but a guardian of these values. At a school that I previously used to work at, largely a Hispanic community, we had a role called parent and family advocate. And the woman that was our parent and family advocate was not our only parent and family advocate, but it was her job to serve parents and families and be a liaison between the community and the school. And I can guarantee you that she pushed some very real and very frank conversations about what the community needed uh, and what the school, how the school was not serving them well in certain areas. And it was because of her that we were actually able to get some real traction. It's deceptive. It's uh, it's simple on paper, but it's deceptively it's it's difficult to, mm-hmm. to actually put into practice, right? Because underlying all those three things, I'll say, because it's like, oh, it's like Maria, well, duh, like time, money, humans, duh, but. It's all at the root of that are like people's values, mm-hmm. right, and privilege, which is another thing that I think is getting in the way. We're at a place, I would argue, with white privilege where it's like, to your point, Bakari, white people know that you have to at base, at minimum, appear open to the conversation of like racial equity. Some and, do. Well, yes, that's true. That's true. Um, no, right. no, that's, that's a good push. That's a good push. <laughs> But I would I, say those who serve in the on. urban in the urban core know that you it is a red flag if you try to opt out or if you try to shut down. At least I would hope that would be a red flag. I think right. that's mm-hmm. part of my frustration is that it honestly, it doesn't always feel like it is a red flag. When you have white teachers standing in front of black and brown children every day who opt out or refuse to participate in conversation around equity and bias and, and, the, and their role in the classroom. So this, so that gets back to something you were saying earlier, which made me think, and forgive if this question is naive, but if why do you choose to work in a setting like that if you... You better ask that question. That is a great question. <laughs> That's, once we find that answer, we'll be making some money. <laughs> but, you still, so you still, but you still encounter that dichotomy. Oh, yes. 
but ego's wrapped up into it too, right? Yeah. You know, like the, there's that that ego that, uh, and it's almost kind of like I hate saying it, but like a white savior. I mean, even as a profession, we put a value on on where we teach, where it, it, it's almost like you're given a badge of honor if you're teaching in an urban area. It's like, and because I, I tell this to to you know people that because uh, I live out in the suburbs, and and so when when I encounter people at the gyms, like where do you teach at? And I tell them, it's like, oh, that's awesome, you know, good job, you know. And, and if and if I told them I was teaching in the uh, in the suburban district, they'd be like, yeah, okay, you know, that's kind of the expected thing. Or if if you're teaching like at a you know place of privilege, it's just like, eh. You know, mm-hmm. kids, kids don't really need that. Um, but yeah, it's like you're given like that badge of honor if, if, if you're teaching in the, in the urban core. And so there's like that ego that's wrapped around it where, and if, and if that's the case, you're going to have a hard time letting go of that privilege, right? Yeah. Because it's like, well, yeah, I have more power than you. That's why I'm here. And that could be a difficult and So what, that was part am I of hearing you say there's like this social credibility associated with white folk who teach in the hood? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. The digital divide. We know what that is, right? We hear about it all the time. It's the idea that low-income and often minority kids are being left behind their more well-off and white peers because they don't have as ready access to broadband internet at home and have trouble keeping up in schools that increasingly rely on digital devices and one-to-one technology. But a recent story in the New York Times takes this common conception of a digital divide and flips it on its head. What if the problem is not too little access to digital technology... But too much. This story, reported by Nellie Bowles, shows that even as schools across the country move aggressively to introduce one-to-one technology to their students, many affluent parents are taking drastic steps to limit their children's exposure to screens because of growing anxiety about the psychological and emotional effects of the devices on developing brains. This story in the Times shows rich parents in Silicon Valley, many of them employees at places like Facebook and Apple, enrolling their kids in device-free preschools, strictly limiting their kids' use of smartphones at home, in some cases not allowing them to even see a smartphone until they're in their teens. Yet contrast that with what is happening in many schools, including yours, I'm going to assume, where there are concerted pushes to get everything on one-to-one technology. How do you do you feel about this? Does this strike you as intuitively true? Are you surprised? How do you feel? At least for for me, since I teach high school, the digital divide, the original digital divide is still there just because those rich, affluent kids will still have one-to-one technology. It's just that the school's not providing it for them, right? They're going to have that that tech anyway. Our kids, we do give them one-to-one tech, but the problems, the obstacles that come with that... It's, it, it, it makes it so that it's not really one-to-one. For instance, we have Chromebooks that are aging that sometimes don't function very well. Um, we don't have a really good replacement plan, so some kids go, go a long time without having a Chromebook. That, not only that, kids may not have Internet access at home. So really, it's not, it's not truly we, – we can say it's one-to-one because every, every student gets – at the beginning of the year supposedly gets a Chromebook, but it's, it doesn't really work out that way. And then there are some schools that even charge, even in the urban uh, core, that charge students for renting out a Chromebook. And if you don't pay that charge, then you don't get a Chromebook. And so then the, the idea of one-to-one is, is um, really false. 
to the original di- digital divide as it's we've still, conceived it's it still, still exists. Yeah, yeah, at least at least in the upper, I I could see that maybe um, because it, it it mentioned like preschool. Um, at, at least at the upper levels, like in in high school, middle school, that digital divide is still there. Yeah, I agree. The digital divide is still there. I also, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a left turn, but I'm also wondering about like, is it even necessary to have one to one technology? At my school, we do not have. We are not one to one. Uh, students do not have their own personal laptops. We have plenty of technology, plenty of computers, plenty of everything. But we don't have, you know, we don't check out a one-to-one system for kids. What I will say is that having access to technology is really, really important for our kids. My juniors and seniors are taking a class called AP Seminar that is essentially a research-based course. So they need access to things like JSTOR and EBSCOhost and Academic Search Premier and the New York Times and all that sort of stuff. So they do need access to digital research materials. But I don't know that if you were to ask them, hey, do you feel like you need your own laptop to complete your work? I don't think that they would actually say yes. So I'm wondering about even just the the benefits of it. I also think it's interesting that on the one hand, we have communities where we still, I agree with you, Greg, do have a digital divide and just general access to technology based on socioeconomic status. But those that have a plethora, a glut of access to it are seeming to limit screen time. I think that also speaks to just like supply and demand. There's a greater supply on the affluent side. And so now there's a greater push to to question and inter-restrict it. I do think, though, we still need to continue to push for socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic status communities. Do a lot of your students ha- access. Um, lack access at home, uh, lack access to broadband or lack access to uh, digital devices or smartphones connected to the Internet? Many do. Many do lack access to what I would call like a desktop computer at home. Most are reliant on their smartphones for Internet access. But they can do that at home. Right. They can do that at home. But when I ask a student, hey, you know, I've asked students before, like, are you able, do you have a printer at home? And they're like, no, but I have a printer at the library. And I'll be like, oh, do you have access to um, like a desktop computer? Because certain web pages or certain things that they might want to do or might, you know, that I might offer uh, won't work as well on a smartphone. So, for example, like Launchpad, there's like things that will come with a textbook that can help students reinforce basic schema and history. Uh, and it's not supported by tablet or smartphone platforms. It's only supported by like a desktop browser. And we opted, I opted against, you know, implementing that into the curriculum or or making that a requirement because not every student had access to that. I agree to an extent that the digital divide still exists. I think there are many districts who are working um, very innovatively to overcome that divide. The, the the initial digital divide definitely exists. I think to Maria's point that, that supply and demand, that if you've never had access to it, then you're not in a space where you're going to start talking about controlling your access to it when you just got access to it to begin with. So I don't think that screen time right now is a major issue, at least from my, my vantage point. I don't think screen time has become a major issue. I think leveraging that screen time you're appropriately. You're talking about among your students and among your parents. Right, yeah. correct. Yeah. I think that we are still working with teachers to incorporate technology in the most value-add ways, but I don't, I don't see our students just sitting in front of computers for eight hours a day in unproductive ways. Yeah. Uh, interesting you should uh, say eight hours a day. Uh, because there's a statistic quoted in this New York Times story from Common Sense Media. says, low-income teens spend on average more than eight hours a day using screens for entertainment. That seems staggering to me. That means that they're doing it outside of school for eight hours. Mm. Their higher-income peers in this study are still on screens a lot, uh, but still significantly less, five hours and 40 minutes per day. 
you say your students, the, the, the anxieties about screen time and its possible effects may, may not have reached your school and your students yet, if it ever will. Why not? Great question. <laughs> I mean, let me put it another way. So I think as, as we learn more about the effects of screen time possibly on developing brains, um, there is this growing anxiety, especially among people with means and privilege, to be able to put a stop to it. Do you as educators ever feel like you are peddling a product that is potentially harmful <laughs> to your students, like when you're doing one-to-one technology in your schools or having them go on a Chromebook or uh, you know, assigning something through the Internet? I, do you ever feel like you're, you're part of the problem? <laughs> I, I think the problem is uh, kind of what Bakari was saying earlier is just making sure that we're using the technology the, um, and, and everything available effectively because most of the stuff sometimes that, that we do is stuff that we could just do without a computer. If anything, we're just giving students another excuse because they could claim, oh, my Chromebook isn't working, so I couldn't do the paper. Oh, well, we don't have internet at home, so I couldn't do the homework. And, and like, what, what can you say to that when, when you're supposed to put all the homework online on Google Classroom and um, all of a sudden, yeah, they can't do the homework. So I also have a th- theory that a lot of our students who come from families where everybody's working and maybe working two or three jobs to make ends meet aren't able to regulate the amount of screen time at home. So I know that a lot of our students are playing Fortnite until 2 a.m. They've told me they come to school and they're falling asleep. You know, so I, it, I, I can see that. Um, and there's really nobody at home to, to regulate that. Well, to the point then that, that, that this New York Times story made, then if you do have affluent parents of means who are strictly limiting their kids' uh, screen time and regulating it, is that creating a new potentially pernicious digital divide? If the students that you have, you say, are, are going home and, and, and I, I, I know affluent students are doing this too, but going home and playing Fortnite for three or four hours. I think part of what I would push is that we have to reshape the conversation. I think we often, in education particularly, always grounded in what are the affluent white folk doing and not really grounding in what are the needs of the students in which we're serving. And so, again, I don't think we any of us would agree that kids should be playing Fortnite up until 2 a.m. or for extended periods of time, but it's about how they're leveraging their screen time and what are they doing with that screen time, whereas I think some things that our uh, our students may only have access via screen time mm-hmm. that white affluent families may get without the screen time I saw, are, are, is, could be part of that conversation. Do you have an example of that? It's an interesting point. I think, like, even virtual field trips, right? So, like, there, our students may take a virtual field trip where a white affluent school may actually get on the school bus and go. And so I think that there are opportunities that that screen time and Internet digital technology provides greater access for lower economic students, uh, socioeconomic students than affluent students that simply enhances their experiences that they would other, otherwise not have access to. So we like to have these, like, sky is falling type conversations about digital technology and you're saying we may not be assessing the potential positives for communities that, that may not have. Right. Well, I'm also saying just they had access. But I'm also saying that just whatever white affluent parents are complaining and thinking through does not necessarily mean that they matter to others. That's a good place to end. Uh, before we get to kids these days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. A 
a high school music teacher in California was arrested on suspicion of child abuse after brawling with a 14-year-old student who repeatedly called the teacher a racial epithet, the N-word, should be noted, in class. A cell phone video of that incident shows 64-year-old Marston Riley punching the student again and again after the student can clearly be heard using that racial slur. The Los Angeles Unified School District says it's also investigating the incident. Meanwhile, I don't know what this says, a GoFundMe page set up for Riley. The teacher has now raised nearly $180,000 to pay for his legal expenses. The American Academy of Pediatrics has issued updated guidance urging parents to avoid spanking their children. This story is not related. The AAP says spanking can lead to long-term negative emotional and cognitive effects for kids. The AAP originally issued its guidance against spanking in 1998. This update goes further in detailing the apparent harm spanking can do. Children who are spanked are more likely to develop aggressive behaviors and are at an increased risk of mental health disorders later in life. Again, that's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. And finally, one more Election Day story. Voters in Maryland overwhelmingly approved a ballot measure that's set to funnel an estimated $500 million annually in casino revenues back to public schools. Nearly 90% of voters voted for this measure, which supporters called Fix the Fund. Maryland officials say the state is currently $3 billion short of fully funding K-12 schools in the state. Those were some more of the education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, it's Kids These Days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Also, Kansas City teachers, come to our No Wrong Answers happy hour. It's coming up at Beer Station in the Waldo neighborhood on Thursday, November 15th. More info can be found at No Wrong Answers Facebook page. Now, kids these days. Greg, what are your kids into? Well, um, the nothing, nothing, this isn't really anything like fun or, or, or like breathtaking. Way to set it up. But, to- <laughs> but I think I, it, it is, it is kind of cool nonetheless that, um, with the story of the migrant caravan, uh, coming up from Central America, we have several students at my school who are from Honduras and El Salvador and made similar treks, um, to get to the United States. And, um, they may not have family members that are that are part of the caravan, but they know the stories and they've talked with me about that and they're worried about what's going on and they have their ears to the ground because they like they've gone through the same thing. And just having those conversations about that um, has been really enlightening for me because just for me getting to know that story and what a trip that is to make it up um, seeking seeking asylum in the United States um, and, and the risks that you take has been really eye-opening for me. And so I, I thank my kids for allowing that conversation to happen um, because they, they know what's going on. Even the, even the kids that I don't think they're paying attention in class will, will bring up things like um, about the caravan and about what um, how migrants and immigrants are perceived in this country. Well, that's meaningful stuff. Thanks for sharing, Greg. Uh, Maria, what are your kids into? My kids are into applying and getting into college. Uh, my seniors, like I said, I taught them the past two years. They're our first senior class are uh, killing it. They are doing like we we'll call them like 
uh, college application blitzes and just, like, spending so much time on those. Um, one shout-out in particular to the KC Scholars Program, which just yesterday – or, sorry, on Friday – awarded one of our seniors a $50,000 scholarship uh, to go to UMKC. That's in addition to the three that previously had won a KC Scholar Scholarship. So I'm just grateful to the Kauffman Foundation and that program for really making many different schools that my kids could could get into, not just a good academic fit, but um, I think in some ways, just as importantly, a good financial fit. It's been so long since I've applied for college. What This time of year, like what is the, where are you in the the college application process? Yeah, we have several students who are applying early decision. I've got one, I actually, and so for teachers too, it's it's quite, quite strenuous Mm because we're doing a lot of letters. Yes, yes, letters of recommendation. We've had several students apply early decision, one to Brown University, one to Miami, and one to George Washington University up in D.C. We have a lot of other students. Most of the students who are getting accepted at this time are getting accepted into colleges that do rolling admissions. So we have a lot who've gotten into KU. We've gotten a lot that are getting into Baker University, Wichita State, um, Mizzou. So that, yeah, it, it just kind of depends. Like if the school has rolling admissions, they're already getting that feedback and hearing back, but a lot won't actually find out until, you know, a few months till after Christmas. Bakari, what are your kids into? So they're not applying for college yet, yet, but right now my kids are into the word period. They are overusing the word. I'm not sure where it's coming from, um, but they end everything. So if they'll make a statement, they'll say period at the end of it, just to make sure that you understand that that is the end (laughs) of whatever they're saying. So if I tell them to go to class, I say, get to class on time, and they'll be like, period, like, so they just put period on the end of they put, they put period on the phrases. end of your sentences, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. yeah. So any redirection ends with a period. So um, <laughs> I guess it just emphasizes the point that's being made. Well, this is the end of our show. <laughs> period. Period. Uh, now I know how it works. Uh, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Maria Kennedy, and Bakari Oku'u. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Also, Kansas City teachers, come to No Wrong Answers Happy Hour at Beer Station in Waldo on Thursday, November 15th. That starts at 5 p.m. Until then, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.